will be reading together today in Deuteronomy chapter 29. These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant that he had made with them at Horeb. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you and your sandals have not worn off your feet. You have not eaten bread, and you have not drunk wine or strong drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And when you came to this place, Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us to battle, but we defeated them. We took their land and gave it for an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of the Manassites. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that he may establish you today as his people, and that he may be your God as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It is not with you alone that I am making the sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord our God and with whoever is not here with us today. You know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed and you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord your God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man, and the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. And the Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in this book of the law. And the next generation, your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a far land will say when they see the afflictions of that land and the sicknesses with which the Lord has made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing where no plant can sprout, an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboam, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. All the nations will say, why has the Lord done this to the land 
What caused the heat of this great anger? Then people will say, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of our fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. This is the word of the Lord. We suggest for people before they get married that it's helpful and useful for them to go through some sort of premarital counseling that can help them think through and address some of the problems that might come up or think through their own lives and how they're going to connect and unite as one. Premarital counseling is suggested and helpful. If you need some, let us know. We'd love to help you figure that out. But when you get to the wedding day, all the marriage prep and premarital counseling is finished. The time for all the preparations of even the ceremony itself are over. And you come to that time when it's, it's time to commit officially and publicly in front of God and others. And when we come to Deuteronomy 29, we've kind of landed at a place like that, where, where in a sense the, the premarital counseling is over. Now we've come to that day, and it's time to commit. Israel is there. They've heard Moses declare the law to them, preaching what they had heard from Sinai and kind of filtering that down to them, preaching the law to them, preaching covenant and covenant stipulations to them. He's declared to them and over them the the blessings of covenant keeping and the curses of, of covenant breaking. And now it is time for them to renew the covenant officially before the Lord. And so what Moses is, is going to walk Israel through here is, in a sense, it's a, a covenant renewal ceremony. And this covenant renewal ceremony is full of covenant history and covenant stipulations. And it probably wouldn't be fitting for Deuteronomy if it didn't have uh, thrown in there some, some intense warnings of, of curses that might fall on them as well. And so chapter 29 begins this new section, and we have one of Moses' final speeches, final exhortations to Israel, a, a people that he'd led for 40 years. And he says in verse 1 that these are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab, right at the edge and the, the, the doorstep of the promised land, right before they enter it, besides the covenant that he had made with them at Horeb. These words, he says, I think that he's referring to what he said in Deuteronomy, 28 chapters full of it. These words refer to the covenant that God is making with this people, the people that is on the doorstep of the promised land, the people in Moab, just before they enter into the, the land that God had promised to give them. And, and the covenant relationship that he's 
entering into them is, is a relationship that is both legal and, and loving. Legal is that there, there are actual stipulations to this relationship, but it's also loving. It's an actual relationship. The, the heart of, of covenant, as we'll see in this passage, is relationship. And here it's between God and a sinful people. But these stipulations that are given in covenants, they're, they're binding. They, they matter. And so there are real blessings and real curses attached to these things within the covenant. But this covenant, Moses says, is a covenant besides the one at Horeb. The, the, the reference to Horeb would have been a reference to Sinai. That would have been the covenant that they made when they had just come out of Egypt. They were at Mount Sinai, and God writes down the law for them. That would have been a covenant. And he said, this one is besides that covenant. And I think that, that means that it's, it's not a replacement of it. It's a supplement to it. You see, Israel's side of the covenant that had been made at Sinai had been shattered by Israel themselves. By generation that God had judged in the wilderness, Israel's side had been broken. And so here God has sustained the people, brought a new generation up, brought them to the edge of the land that he had promised to give to the generation prior and said that this is for you. And this covenant is now a supplement of that covenant, a renewal of covenant that had been broken with a new generation in a new place on the plains of Moab. So this section then is covenant renewal, and, and Israel begins with hearing some of that covenant history. Verse 2, Moses summoned them and said, you've seen all the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all the servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw and the signs and those great wonders. I like how Psalm 78 kind of summarizes a little bit about those things. We can read through that so quickly and, and miss, again, just the wonder of what God actually did in those places. Those signs and those wonders were magnificent. I, I like how Psalm 78 kind of summarizes some of it for us. He turned their rivers to blood so they could not drink of their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locusts and the fruit of their labor to the locusts. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to thunderbolts. He let loose on them burning anger, wrath, indignation, distress, and a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the firstfruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. And then he let out his people like sheep. And he guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid, that the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won. And what they saw, the, the things that they had experienced, the, the generation that's on the plains of Moab would have been young when this happened, but they still could take these things in with their eyes. And what they saw revealed to them the exclusivity of God. Like they knew that the gods of Egypt couldn't be the real gods if their God could do that to them. They knew that as they crossed the sea and as God provided for them and sustained them, that this God is different. There's some exclusivity here in terms of his power and sovereignty and might. There's a distinction that this God has above all other gods. And it's a distinction that he made not just as God, but he identifies himself as that distinct God with this distinct people. And this was as God wanted. He wanted to set himself apart as, so that the world would know that he alone is God. You see that phrase if you read the book of Exodus. 
He, he says that you may know. It's a repeated phrase there. He, he wanted, God wanted Israel to know. He wanted Pharaoh to know in Egypt. And he wanted the world to know that he alone is God. He made his intentions clear with those signs and wonders that there'd be no mistake. He wanted his people, especially in the nations, to know there's no other God. These signs and wonders that he performed were unparalleled and they were done before their eyes. But look at verse 4. They weren't enough. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. And one commentator said that Moses knows that the eyes that had witnessed the Exodus. And can you imagine witnessing those wonders and signs? They have not become eyes of faith. The ears that had heard the thunder of Mount Sinai, so loud and so uh, scary and frightening that they said, we need you to speak to God, Moses, because we might die if we hear more. Those ears that had heard the thunder of Mount Sinai have not become ears of obedience in spite of good intentions. They'd seen, but they hadn't seen with faith. They'd heard God's voice give the law, but they hadn't heard with trust in their heart. And what a statement here in the middle of this, of the condition of the heart of man, that one can see signs like they saw, can take in and observe the wonders that God had performed in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness, can hear God's voice and the thunder on Mount Sinai and still not trust Him. That's what a heart of understanding would be, a heart that trusts God, a heart that loves God, a heart that responds rightly to all that God has shown himself to be, all that he's promised, all that he is, that would be a heart of understanding. And what a statement on the hardness of hearts to say, you could take in all of the Exodus events, you could hear God thunder down the law on Sinai, and your heart still be far from him. The Exodus, those signs and those wonders, and the law thundered from heaven, those things can't give an understanding hearts. It's so easy, and I used to do this all the time. It just seemed natural as I read this when I was younger to think about the the Israelites and think, how could you not know? Right? Like, how could you not see that this alone is God and then follow him in obedience? It seems so simple. Like, he laid these curses out in front of you. You saw some of those poured out on the nations. You know that he can deliver on these things. You know he can save you. How could you not go that way and listen to him and obey him? It's so easy to look back and say, thank God I'm not like those people. And yet Jesus warned us of something similar, didn't he? When he told the parable of of a Pharisee. Let's remember where right hearts come from. Because no one works their way into it. No law, no covenant, no seeing the right thing, seeing of miracles, or or even hearing powerful words, none of those things create and produce a right heart before God, an understanding heart before God, a heart of faith before God. Jesus reminds us of this too. He has a, a man who had seen the right things, heard the right things. Nicodemus come to him at night and say, hey, what about us? And you remember what he tells him in John chapter 3? How does it happen? Do you, do you work your way into seeing the kingdom of God? It's not what Jesus tells him. In John chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus responds to Nicodemus and says, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You, you can't produce 
this kind of heart. You can't get the heart that's right to make you to where you are now acceptable in the kingdom of God. It has to come from above. Verse 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That's all of us naturally, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. In other words, Jesus is saying, it doesn't come from you, Nicodemus. It's got to come from above. Later in chapter 3, John the Baptist, some of his disciples are following Jesus. And John the Baptist is totally cool with it, likes it, wants it to happen. That was the reason he came. But listen to what he says to some of his disciples. He says that a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given from where? From heaven, from above. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 14, that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Or or Paul would tell us in in Romans chapter 8, verse 7 and 8, that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, because those who are in the flesh, what can they do? They cannot Please, God. Or we could look at Jesus again in, in John 15, 5, and he says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. You, you can't see the right things and then have the right kind of heart. You can't hear the right things and then have the right kind of heart. Those things come from God alone. If anyone of us here today has an understanding heart, a heart that trusts God, a heart that loves God, then here's the credit that we can give. We have to give it to God. Because we are the natural man that looks at those things as if they were folly unless God works on us. Those things are not given by the right sights, by the right wonders, by the right signs. They're only given by God. New hearts are needed. Isn't that what Jesus came to say and to do? Understanding hearts come from God alone. Moses describes it this way. The Lord has not given a heart of understanding. The exodus and the law, they couldn't give hearts of faith because those hearts were hardened by sin and those things couldn't change that. Only God can give what's needed. And Moses says pretty plainly, God hasn't granted it yet. Understanding hearts full of faith, full of trust, they're beyond Israel's grasp. They only come from God. So verse 4 adds in this tension to what remains for all of Deuteronomy, doesn't it? The Deuteronomy, here, even in this chapter, we have this covenant renewal. Here's what you're to do. You're to keep the covenant that God is putting in front of you. And, and it puts that intention with Israel's need. And their need is to have a heart of understanding, to, to love and trust God. And so you have what remains and what's needed in tension. They are renewing a covenant before they're entering in the promised land with the strong hint that their hearts can't keep it because they're not understanding hearts. And so verse 4 adds tension that this covenant that they're even renewing now isn't enough for them. So I think that what this does is it shows us that this covenant itself had, as one commentator says, like a built-in obsolescence. In other words, this covenant is built to not last because it can't produce that kind of thing. And, and God knows that. And so I think what verse 4 is, is this breadcrumb that, that's kind of leading us to the end, to the covenant's ends to the future to where something else is needed. There is a need to see then a greater exodus to really take in, to really see it in order to have a heart that is different. There's a need to hear a better word than the word of the covenant, than the word of the law. There's a a need for the cutting of a new covenant where they can receive not just new words, but new hearts. And so verse four is the law pointing us forward 
to something better, pointing Israel forward in their need to what God could do and only God could do. Now, this doesn't mean that God isn't gracious, hasn't been gracious to. It doesn't mean that this covenant isn't a gracious covenant and a good covenant. Look at all that God had done for them in in verses 2 and 3. He'd done so much for them. God had already loved them, chose them, redeemed them, given them his law, spoken directly to them. They'd seen a lot. They'd heard a lot. None of that is without the grace of God, the mercy of God upon them as a people. All of those things are good and gracious. He had given them this gracious deliverance. But all those things weren't enough to change their hearts. Look what else he continues to do that he tells them in the covenant history. Here's what has happened. Verse 5, I've led you for 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you and your sandals have not worn off your feet. Those those clothes and sandals went through 40 wilderness years. That's not like they're not lounging in air conditioning. They took took a beating in the wilderness, their clothes and their shoes. Does anyone still have an article of clothing from 40 years ago? I, I could see, maybe you like have a jacket or something, like, a, like your, your school j- leather jacket or something. That seems acceptable. If there's something that you've had for 40 years that has had daily use, here's what we want you to do. Just go ahead and get rid of it at this point. Like it's, 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 used, it's used up its time, right? Like if you have sandals that are 40 years old, you wore them daily in, in a, you know, kind of a sweaty situation, like probably get rid of them. Now you can look up online uh, different kind of suggestions for how long to keep shoes. There's all sorts of suggestions, right? Like you could go by steps, miles, months, something like that. Podiatrists have their opinions. Chiropractors have their opinion. Like here's what we know. It's none of it's 40 years. <laughs> not, not one person will say that. Depends on the, what you're using it for, what kind of shoe it is, who, you know, all those things. And none of it's 40 years. And yet here we have all the way down to their very shoes. God has taken care of them for 40 years. Their clothing, it didn't wear out. Like, what kind of God? Is this a really merciful God? They couldn't have gotten new shoes out in the wilderness. God had to keep them. They couldn't have, like, oh, let's, let's figure out how we can make clothes out of the barren wasteland out here. No, God kept their clothes for them. He's been so good to them. He continues, verse 6, you have not eaten bread and have not drunk wine or strong drink that you may know that I'm the Lord your God. And while that doesn't sound so good, like, where's, where's the bread and wine? Perhaps the, the lack of wine kept them from some potential problems within the camp. They already had plenty. They didn't need extra things adding more problems, so maybe it was for their good. But get this, Israel didn't have grain, so they couldn't make bread. And they're not going to be able to grow grain in the wilderness. That wasn't the place to grow the crops, right? They don't have vines in the wilderness. But guess what? Israel was provided for every step along the way. Even daily, God gave them bread that came from heaven, and he gave them water that came from rocks. Like God is gracious in his provision. And what was the point? It was the same point as the Exodus. What? That they may know that their Lord is the one true living God. It's to teach them reliance and trust upon this God. Day after day, God kept providing for them. The daily activities, even their walking around on sandals that are sustained for 40 years, were pointing to the reality that the Lord is God. So too the not-so-normal days, the days when they'd have to go out to battle. In verse 7 and 8, they, they defeated these kings and they took this land. And that was showing them again, like, this is the one true living God. 
that their gods couldn't be couldn't keep them from from us destroying them. Our, our God is the one true living God. He's the sovereign God. He's faithful to his promises. He brings them to the land just as he said he would. Leads us to verse 9 where he says, Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all you do. What's God's intent for them? Pr- prosper. He wants to prosper them. He, he's not hiding it. He wants to do good for them. Like, And it comes in the context of obedience. He gives those words again that we've seen so often in the book of Deuteronomy. Keep them, do them. God wants obedience. But those words come after that therefore in our translation. Therefore, and then keep, and then do. The, The exodus through all the wilderness years, the Lord has shown that he alone is God. He's shown his power. He's shown his faithfulness. He's shown his trustworthiness. He's shown his love. He's shown his mercy, and he says, because of all you've seen and heard and know me to be through all of that, keep my covenant. Do these words. He's shown them in over-the-top ways that they can cast themselves upon him for their very life and for the good life. And how does God want them to cast themselves upon him? By obedience. By keeping these words, by doing them. He says, therefore, because of all that you've seen, because I'm God and because of all you know me to be, do these words, keep them. And that's the same foundation for obedience for all the people of God. God is teaching a timeless lesson that trusting that he is God looks like obedience to his words. It looked like it then, it looks like it now. Israel should think about all that they've seen and heard and what they know about God, what they know to be true from him, and they should obey. And we should too. Now, one author says that who God is, what God has done, is doing and will do, provides, do for us, provides the foundation for our response of faith and obedience. Are there areas that you're struggling to obey God in this morning? Like, are there ways that you're you're sensing like some hardness of your heart? Like, I I don't want to do that thing that God has told me to do. Then perhaps you need to go back and check the foundation and make sure that the foundation is who God is, what he has done, what he has promised to do, and then respond to that. Because if you're coming from a different foundation, it's destined to fail. Perhaps there's the wrong foundation. If you're, if you're trying to, to come from a foundation of establishing relationship with God through your obedience, that foundation is going to fail. As Israel, the Christian gives obedience to God not to belong to God, not to earn something from God, not to gain God's favor. All of those things in Christ we have. But because we have those things, because we know who God is and what he has done and what he has promised, then we say, I couldn't help but obey you if all that I am and all that I have, I want to do what you want me to do. Those in Christ have nothing to prove, nothing to earn. Those are ours already in Christ. We are sons of the living God in Christ. And because we're sons, we want to obey our Father, who we know to be a good, gracious, merciful, mighty, loving God. Now that's the commitment that God is calling Israel to respond to all that you've seen and heard, all that you know me to be as the one true living God, as the Lord your God, respond to that in commitment to this covenant by obeying these words, doing them, keeping them. That would be the response, the right kind of response from Israel. And so this people is to make a fresh commitment to the Lord. And you're going to notice this repeated word in this chapter, the word today. 
It's repeated. He wants the, the emphasis to be like, it, right now you're making this commitment. You, you are doing this before the Lord right now. Look at verse 10. You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops your wood and the one who draws your water. Like the, the greatest to the least, all of them are there on that day. And they're all included in this renewal. And, and it's just like, you look at the picture, and it's, it's a really beautiful picture. Because here is all of Israel included, even some of the servants that have come along the way. The great, the small, the big, the little, the old, the young. They're all there, and they're standing in the presence of God. Because God, although not thundering from a mountain at this point, is still there and present with them in their midst. As Moses preaches this word to them. And all these people, they still have their distinctions. They haven't lost all that. But all of them with their distinctions. And, and we have elders and little ones. And there's different roles and all those things. None of those things are race, but they are all before God and they're all leveled, right? Standing as one before God, leveled as they hear these words. All of them are in the same place where they're to respond rightly to God. And they hear these words. Verse 12 says, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, when the Lord your, with the, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that he may establish you today as his people, and that he may be your God, as he promised you, and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It's not with you alone that I'm making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord our God, and with whoever is not here with us today. This, this covenant includes Israel in its entirety, and the aim of this covenant couldn't be more gracious. Verse 13, here's the aim. That he may establish you as his people, and that he may be your God. It doesn't sound like, again, it sounds like a, a wedding ceremony. It sounds very wedding-ish, doesn't it? Like you, you say in a wedding, do you take so-and-so to be your lawfully wedded husband? And do you take so-and-so to be your lawfully wedded wife? Like you're the husband, you're the wife, there's this commitment to one another. Here is what's going on. Israel, you are to be the people. God is going to be the God, right? He's going to be God overall and God of you. That's what's going on here. You're to be the people. The Lord is to be God. And as weddings are marked with love and this commitment to this covenant, so too is this to be. But this covenant and this covenant renewal is a little bit one-sided. It's God who took the initiative to choose Israel, not vice versa. It's God who set his love upon Israel. It's not them that set their love upon God. It's God who had redeemed Israel and pulled them out of slavery to the Egyptians. It is God who had spoken to them. It is God who had sustained them. It is God who had chosen not to destroy them utterly from underneath the earth because they had rebelled against him. All of those things are God. It is God that had even led them up to this place of renewal. They couldn't stay in this relationship. God had to keep it when they didn't. So he was the party in this covenant that was offended as the covenant was broken by sin. And it's his covenant then to renew. But he does not owe it to Israel. He does not owe them anything. They've broken, they have broken the covenant. Their end has been defeated. But the Lord is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And here he puts before them this covenant. And the heart of the covenant is still there. And the heart of the covenant is this. You be my people and I'll be your God. In other words, the heart of this covenant is relationship with God. This is God's 
very heart. And so he binds himself in covenant with a sinful people that have already broken their end of the covenant. The heart of the covenant is God and people and relationship. And in all the blessings and all the curses and all the covenant stipulations that we see and have read through in Deuteronomy, what we shouldn't miss about this covenant is that it's about relationship. The reference to Abraham and to the forefathers reminds that what God has been desiring and been pursuing from a long time ago, before even this people was around, was relationship with a people. And again, as we sit here today, like that hasn't changed. Like God is so committed to relationship with a people that he himself took on flesh and pursued a people. He didn't come first to be an example to the people, though he was. He didn't come first as a display of the love of God, though Jesus was that too. He didn't come first to beat the enemy and win over sin and death, although that was part of it too. What did Jesus came to do? He came to seek and save that which is lost. He came to redeem a people. And we are the fortunate ones who get to hear a little bit about the end of the story as well. Revelation kind of gives this encouraging spoiler to the people of God on this story that had started long, long ago that God, he set out and pursued to redeem a people and he gets a lot. Revelation 21, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down from heaven, God, from God and prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice at the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning anymore, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Spoiler is like God gets his people. And it's a people that John says, like, we can't even count them because it's so many. God is really good at redeeming a people. That's what he'd set out to do. He had set out to be with a people. He, their God, they, his people. And the end of the story shows us exactly that. God accomplishing his mission on the earth of redeeming a people who will be with him forever. They, his people, he, their God. Now that's skipping ahead in the story a bit. We've still got some covenant renewal processes to go on through in the plains of Moab, but we can't miss the heart of God. It was present in Moab, and it's present in the book of Revelation in that new heavens and new earth. God is God and with a people. And in renewing this covenant, God is following the pattern of other covenants of the time. The, the ruling party, the, the one who's kind of in charge, like he is because he's God and they broke their end of the covenant, gets to give out to the other party the, the stipulations to the covenant, what they want them to do and fulfill, the, the ways that they are to be loyal to this covenant. And these stipulations would spell out, here's what faithfulness looks like, here's what loyalty looks like, and it would warn, here's what happens if you don't do these things, here are the warnings of breaking the covenant, and that's where we turn in verse 16. You know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. And you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. God has been really clear to his people that as they go through the nations, as they encounter the nations, they are a distinct people because they have a distinct 
God. So he is distinct and the one and only God, he is unique above all other gods and they are to reflect that in their distinctness as a people that they trust in this one true living God only. He had been really clear to them about warnings that idolatry will, is the path of death and curse. Don't go that way. He even warned them of the first two words of the, the 10 words, the 10 commandments are, hey, I'm the Lord your God. You shouldn't have any other gods before me. And, and by the way, number two, like don't make idols. Even if you're trying to make the, like an image of me, don't do that. We don't do that because even the, the earth and everything under the, the, nothing could contain me. So let's not even go there. So he has warned them and spelled it out to them very, very clearly. And their experience should have taught them this, right? We keep going into nations, they keep fleeing in front of us. Why does that keep happening over and over and over again? Because our God is distinct. He's the one true living God. They saw Egypt and the nations in front of them judged and routed by God and their idols were no help. So he says, don't go that way. You, you know these things, you've, you've seen that. And so he warns them, beware, verse 18, lest there be any among you, be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God and to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of the sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Now, the book of Deuteronomy has been emphasizing and, and been addressing a community of people, a, a nation, a people, a collective people. And, and he's been calling for obedience from a people. God wants a people committed to him, devoted to him, giving their, their full-hearted allegiance and loyalty to him. But he has not done those things at the expense of individuals and at the expense of individual obedience. So he says to them, if, if one of you gets the idea that because you're part of Israel, you're included in this covenant community, the community that's going to walk in and experience the blessings of this covenant with me as your God, and you think that in that, because I'm a part of that community, that I can just go my own way, that the translation of the NIV there of the stubbornness of heart is to go your own way, which is a really great definition of sin. He says, if any of you thinks that and you could just go your own way and then you're still going to be able to share in the blessings of this covenant community, you're wrong. Individuals aren't to go their own way or walk in the stubbornness of their hearts, but they're also not to go their own way and walk in the stubbornness of their hearts and think that still, that because we're a part of this covenant community, that because we're a part of Israel, that we're safe. He says, that's out. It, there's a thought here that, that this person is, is kind of saying this internally so that there's maybe some secret sin going on here, some secret idolatry. They might feel even a sense because it's maybe not widely known to other people that maybe I'm safe because people don't know about it. And what they don't know is not going to bother anybody, right? Like it's okay for me to still have part of this covenant blessing and walk in this secret sin and I probably won't be found out. But God is really clear. Nothing's hidden before him. Like it will be found out by God. In fact, Moses is coming from the assumption that it's already known by God. Now, I loved watching when I was growing up the Oklahoma State Cowboys. It's always who I liked watching, but I liked watching their basketball teams when I was growing up because they used to be really, like, they were fun to watch. They were good. And one of my favorite teams was the team that had Doug Gottlieb on it. And I don't know if you remember Doug Gottlieb. He does a radio show now, so he's probably more well-known for that than his basketball playing days. But he was a, a, a short, white point guard. And he was really fun to watch because, man, could that guy dribble and pass. Like, he was so good at facilitating the offense. And, man, he was really, really fun to watch. But what wasn't fun to watch was to watch him shoot. 
because he was bad. It's like you're a point guard because you need to get the ball out of your hands into somebody else's hands, right? And, you know, I, I, I checked, like, opponents started to pick up on this. Like, we don't have to guard him anywhere near, probably even the free throw line. His free throw shooting percentage never cracked 500. So, man, a high-level athlete, you're playing at the college level, you have really good teams, and you, and you can't shoot above 50% on your free throws? Like, that's brutal. But you might think, like, man, you're Doug Gottlieb. Like, I've got Adrian Peterson over here. I've got Randy Rutherford over here. I've got Desmond Mason over here. I just got to get them the ball, and I'm going to be all right. Right? There's safety there. Not the end of the game, there's not. Like, the, the opponents know. They will expose you. They'll start fouling you every time and see if that 50% can, can get them back into a game. You're going to be exposed for what you are. And guess what? That's, if we think that we can come and say like, well, my free throw shooting percentage doesn't really matter. That won't be exposed because I've got Desmond Mason on my team or I've got Abraham on my team or I've got somebody else on my team. Don't worry about it. It'll be okay. The reality is, is it's going to be exposed. And God doesn't just deal with the, the community as a whole. He, he deals with individuals. It's not just an Old Testament thing, right? Second Corinthians chapter five, all of us are going to appear and stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. God doesn't just deal with the, the whole community, but with the individuals within that community as well. And there can be this false sense of security in being part of a community like this. This thought that maybe because I'm a part of a certain church, or because I'm part of a certain nation, or because I'm part of a certain family, or I'm part of a certain school, that maybe I'm going to be safe. That it doesn't matter what I do secretly on my own. But no one is saved by being in a certain nation or church or family. All will stand before God. We are all individually accountable before God. And so if we're going our own way, walking in the stubbornness of our hearts and in Israel or in the church, and we expect to be safe, we're, we're lying to ourselves. We're not safe that way. Now, those who are going their own way, again, that's the epitome of sin. Those who are walking in the stubbornness of a heart, again, that's the epitome of sin. And those who walk in their own way, the scripture is really clear about what they are called enemies of God. And we ought to especially be warned as we read this passage and we hear these words and think, again, like we can look back and say, I'm so glad I'm not like that. Or think, man, could they really have, could they have thought that after all they've seen and experienced and been through? And yet we need to be warned and remember who's among this crowd. Think about who Moses is addressing. You know who sits among this crowd? Achan. A man that at the start of Joshua is going to secretly go after some treasure that they were told to devote to the Lord. He's going to hide it in his house and think everything's going to be fine. I'm a part of the people of God. We're going to rout the enemy. He's already promised us that. Everything's going to be fine. Achan is hearing these words. Such a person is warned that they're going to be singled out. Look at verse 19. What a frightening way of being singled out. He said, this will lead to sweeping away of the moist and the dry alike. For the Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man, and the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. And the Lord will single him out from all the tribes in Israel for calamity in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in the book of the law. Maybe at this point, Moses is saying, hey, Achan, are you hearing me? Like, 
he's watching another mountain over there and watching the birds fly over it, and, and he needs to be listening to the warning. And the warning here is an extension, like God is saying beforehand what's going to happen, because that's an extension of his mercy. Don't go this way. This is what happens so that you will turn away from those things. It's an extension of his grace. And idolatry is, is everywhere shown to be, shown to be this place where God is constantly warning them, don't go there. He knows their hearts, right? That they're prone to idolatry. And he warns them. Idolatry is poisonous. And the reality is that we know that the Warnings have gone not just to individuals, but to them as a whole, because it's, it spreads. And it seems as if God warns of that too. Not just on an individual level, but as a nation, he warns of, of what would happen. Verse 22, next generation, your children who rise up after you. The foreigner who comes from land will say when they see the afflictions of that land and the sickness which, which, with which the Lord has made it sick, the whole land burned out with the brimstone and salt, nothing sown, nothing growing, where no plant can sprout, an overgrowth, like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath, all the nations will say, why has the Lord done this to the land? What caused the heat of his great anger? And the people say, it's because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he had made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And, he went, and they went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods whom they had not known and whom they had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from the land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are in this day. You, you don't want to have warnings that kind of include you in and allude to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not a good inclusion. Illusions that go that direction are, are never good. And, and he says that when this happens, should you go this way? And if this happens, you might wonder, the nations might wonder, why this judgment? Now, Israel was a display to the nations, and they were going to be a display one way or another, right? They're going to be a display of, of the good life lived under God's good reign and good rule and what the good life looks like and how flourishing looks like when you live in relationship with God, they could show and be a display of covenant keeping, the good life under God's reign. Or they will be a display in another way. They will be a display of the cursed life, the life of resisting God, the life of covenant breaking, the life of facing judgment because they're walking in rebellion against God. They will be a display of one or the other. And in both displays, notice that the nations know what's going on. Israel bears the name of the Lord. They bear it in covenant keeping or they bear it in covenant breaking. This lays upon this people in this covenant renewal ceremony great responsibility. It's one that they might not fully understand. And here we have in these verses, the nations are asking questions. They might hear the words and the weight of these and the, they may not quite fully understand. They might have a question too. And so Moses gives them this verse in verse 29 that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. There's a lot of secret things. Why did God choose Israel? Why did he set his love on them? Why did he redeem them? Why did he make a covenant with them? 
They're so sinful. They're so rebellious. Why them? Why are you making a, another a covenant renewal with them on the edge of the promised land? You, you know all things. You know where this is going. Why are you renewing this thing at this time? Like, what's going on here? Or why bring them to the edge of the promised land and then say in the middle of that, verse 4, but I haven't given you a heart of understanding yet. Why all those things? What's going to happen in the future with this people if that's true? And you've said all these covenant curses. Why all these things? But those things that are secret, that aren't revealed to us, and all those things are part of that, aren't to be immobilizing to Israel. Because so much has been revealed. Think again of the mercy of God. That he would not only create but speak into his creation. He doesn't just do things. He explains them so that we might know him. He invites these people to know him. He speaks, and just his very act of speaking as God is a merciful act from God that we might know him. He, he gives Israel, like, here are the commands. These are the things I want you to know. Other nations didn't have that. They were just coming up with what they thought best, like, what's going to please this God today? But they didn't know. Israel knew. He'd spoken to them. So much had been revealed to them. And what had been revealed isn't to let those secret things then immobilize and paralyze them. They have plenty to do. They have not immobilized because much has been revealed. And what has been revealed, he is very, very clear on, it is to be acted upon. God has redeemed them. He's spoken to them. He's given the law. He's made a covenant with them. And all those things are to lead them to doing them. Obeying his word. Trusting him. What God wants and why he wants it is no secret. Verse 29, this great verse, God God is doing something. He he is forming this people to be a certain kind of people. He's forming a people who will be a people who entrust the secret things to him and trust the revealed things that he has given by doing them. And church, God, God is still forming that kind of people. God is still forming Deuteronomy 29, 29 people. Much is still secret. Don't we know it, Right? Look around. There are so many wise. They're all over the place. There's their unending amount of wise. Why this suffering? Why this nation doing this? Why, why, are, why am I this way? All the whys, they're everywhere. They're in every corner of our lives. They're all over the things. The secret things seem to be just compounded over and over all the time. But we now know what to do with those things. Here's what we do with the secret things. We entrust them to the Lord. They belong to him, this verse says. And because they belong to him, here's what we do when we entrust them to him. We can know that they're in safe hands. Those are good hands. Those are sovereign hands. Those are faithful hands. Those are loving hands. We entrust those things over to him, and we know that what's good and right is actually ultimately going to happen there. We're not responsible for acting upon secret things. And those secret things aren't to immobilize us either speculation and secret things have too often led individuals and churches, people of God, to kind of take this approach to say, ready, aim, 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 aim. We aim in the right direction and no fire. How much time, how many resources have been spilled on trying to figure out secrets? The secret things that we can't know. How much division has been based on speculation? One example. Not in my notes, but we're going for it. All right? You think of the study of the end times, eschatology, right? There's all sorts of views there. Uh, There's views on the millennium. 
That is one chapter out of all the scripture that that's even talked about barely. And that has caused so much speculation, so much division. Like we, t- we look to the end times and we're really concerned about the order of events instead of doing what the scripture does, I think, with the end times and saying, let's go, Christians, like we win. <laughs> how much time, how many resources have been spent on the secret things that are not given clearly to us? How about you? Have you wasted time and resources on things that aren't revealed? Have secret things immobilized you? Like, why is this going on? We don't know. Here's what you do in those places. If you're immobilized by those secret things, you entrust them to God. They already belong to him anyway. You hand them over to him, and you can know that when you do, that they are in good hands, and you trust him with those things. Here's what we're responsible for, the things that are revealed. And church, it's plenty, right? Like we have so much revealed to us, who God is, what he has done, and what he has required of us. So much is revealed. We could spend a lifetime trying to just be faithful to the things revealed, and we're not going to get to the end of it. So let's put our time and our resources and our energy all there. Like let's do the things that God has told us to do, because the revealed things, they belong to us. And they're to be lived out in obedience to God, faithfulness to God. We're responsible for those things. I like how Paul Tripp says it. He says, the Christian life can really be boiled down to two words, trust and obey. I must always entrust the things that are out of my control to God. Those are the secret things. What you do with them, trust them to God. And I must always be faithful to obey his clear and specific commands. Those are the revealed things. They belong to us, and there's plenty of them. So let me ask you, individuals, do trust and obey sum up your life? Does trust and obey sum up our lives as Christians, as a church, as a community of faith? Are we marked not by the secret things that we don't know for sure and that belong to the Lord, or are we marked by the things that are revealed to trust them and obey God by carrying out those words? Let's hear the words of verse 29 again. Those secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do them. Perhaps Deuteronomy 29, 29 points us all a bit forward, do you think? Because there was a time coming for Israel, a time that we, again, by the grace of God, look back on when a profound mystery, things that were secret up until this time, had been revealed. Like they had some mysteries that have been revealed to us. And one of the great mysteries, a mystery that was hidden to them, but maybe this covenant points to, was the mystery that Paul talks about repeatedly, the mystery of Christ. That mystery of of glory in Christ. That those who put their faith in him will be received into glory and will have relationship with God. This is the plan Paul talks about. says, this is the mystery revealed. There's a plan. It's revealed to you. It's to unite all things in Christ. Let's spend our time there. So much has been revealed to us. Let's be the people who are walking out the the plan that God has now revealed, at least in part to us, in Christ, to unite all things in him. Let's be a people who are marked by those two words all the way down to our daily living, trust and obey. Would you pray with me?
God, you know our hearts. You have secret and hidden things from us, but we have nothing that is secret and hidden from you. And you know that we are not terribly good at trusting you. And you know often we're not very good at obeying you. And just like this first group of your people, we need you to give us new hearts. We need you to refresh us. We need you to give us the ability to do the things that you command. And you've provided for all of these things, uh, not just making shoes that never wear out for the Israelites, but you've given us everything that we need to live godly lives. And as much as I want to run to the end of the story and celebrate the fact that you win, that we win, in the end, and that your good purposes are fulfilled, and that the end of our stories are glorious and wonderful forever, and that that is assured. Uh, we need to think about that sometimes, but it also needs to drive us back into the present. We don't want to live just waiting around for you to renew all things. We want to be a part of what you're doing now, and we want to obey your commands now because the truth is we bear your name to this world. We are Christians. We are your body, Jesus, and the world around is looking at us, and we want them to see a blessed life, not blessed with material possessions or or wealth, or some kind of fake happiness where everything goes well. We want them to see the blessed life as people who can go through hard things and still have joy. People who aren't constantly asking you why, 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 when everything goes poorly, but people who have a strong faith in you, who trust you, that your good purposes will be fulfilled, Lord. And we need help. We believe, and we want you to help our unbelief, God. Convict us of the sin of thinking that you don't know what you're doing. Convict us of the sin of thinking that everything's going to fall apart. Help us trust in you. You don't give us the secret things because we can't handle them. Our mind is not your mind. Our thoughts are not your thoughts. We don't know what you're doing behind everything that happens, but we know that you are good and that you wield your power for your glory and for our good, Lord. And you've shown us this again and again and again. You showed us this on the cross, Jesus, where the worst thing that ever happened was the greatest event in human history your death for our sin, your resurrection from the grave. God, help us to trust in you. Help us to obey your word with glad hearts in the power of your Holy Spirit that you give us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.